Good morning, everybody. Today, our scripture is Matthew 23, 16 through 28. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. All right, thank you. She's talking to you guys, all of you. There's sand on the stage, and it keeps appearing more and more sand on the stage, and it's like some miraculous sand falling from somewhere. I'm just joking. No. Put that on YouTube. Nobody would be impressed. Okay. Um, Good morning. Good to see you guys. Yeah. My name's Tommy. Uh, I'm the pastor here, and uh, this is our passage today, and I'm going to walk you through it. There's um, There's some interesting sort of cultural cultural things going on. Um, what, so what, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk about, talk about life as a gift and the methods by which God gave people to remember that. Um, and we're going to talk about spiritual disciplines and how to easily turn those into legalistic laws with which you can oppress everyone around you. So we'll talk about that. Instructions, detailed instructions. Okay. So, uh, so let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump into this passage, shall we? Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this place and these people. And uh, I ask that right now you would allow us to be present here with you, with each other. Um, I ask that as we, as, we, as we read these ancient words of your followers, um, as we study the words of this pastor Matthew, as he, as he writes down these, the sayings of Jesus that he learned for his church so that they can learn how to be your people in this world, I ask that we would somehow take part in... Uh, in the ritual of, of repentance and, and, and transformation, that, that our hearts would be made more like you in your image. Um, I ask that uh, those who are going through heavy things this morning, those who are dealing with bitterness and malice, um, I ask that you would be present with them, give them peace for the moment while we are here, give them peace, allow them to put that aside, and allow them to be ministered to by us, by each other, by your word, by communion, by music, 
and by the words of each other. I ask that uh, those who are rejoicing and going through beautiful, wonderful times, I ask that we would see them and smile and rejoice with them. Um, For those who need your presence, I pray that we would be that for them. Uh, We would sit in, uh, in, in mourning or rejoicing or in thoughtfulness of whatever it is that we are dealing through dealing with and working through and I uh, I ask that you would this morning fashion us more in your image allow us to truly be your presence in the lives of each other here so that we can be fully equipped and filled up and so that we can pour out into the streets and be that in our workplaces um, that people would look at us and would see what Jesus is really like and that they would want somehow to take part in that thank you father in your name amen Okay, so in the ancient world, if you're a Jew, uh, a Jewish man or woman in the first century, um, and you want to talk about God, you're not going to use the word God like we do. We're a lot more casual with our religion than they were. Um, You're not going to do that. Um, Instead, you're going to find some way to mention and describe this God, Yahweh, the divine without actually directly mentioning it, because you are a fallen human being um, who's, who's, who constantly is being selfish in your prayers and your actions and your thoughts. And so it's possible that when you're proclaiming the name of God that you're being selfish as well. So we're going to say something else. And when we write it out, we're going to write it different. Um, there are, um, even to this very day, when devout Jewish men and women write the name of God in, in print or you may have seen it on the internet somewhere. Um, they write God like this. When you see this, you know you're, you're, you're corresponding with somebody or reading the words of somebody who is a devout follower of Yahweh in the full Jewish sense. Um, they dare not name the ineffable name, right? Um, not, even, not even in text. And so, oftentimes when you talk about God in the first century as a Jewish man or woman, instead of saying the word God... You're going to name something in the vicinity of God. You're going to name heaven. Um, Heaven is, it's where all things are in shalom, where shalom is the the Jewish idea for peace. Not just peace as in nobody's fighting. Peace as in everything is exactly the way it should be. Under the reign, the full reign uh, of God, um, fully submitted and in line with the things of God, um, moving from a place of love and compassion and mercy, um, desiring for joy and fulfillment and reconciliation of all things to God. This is where God dwells. It's the realm in which God dwells. Um, all the ways that we can describe it um, in the Bible, there, there, are, there are so many of them. There's these pictures of God sitting on a throne with angels flying around describing holy, holy, holy is, uh, is the Lord. Um, all of that, gather all that together in your mind, and all of that is a metaphor for how things should be and how they surely are where God is present. So instead of mentioning God... You're going to say, praise the heavens, right? Um, and some people in the scriptures, um, depending on the author, if an author of the scriptures is writing to a Gentile audience, a Greek audience, a, a Hellenistic audience, they're going to, they're going to um, speak differently, even if they're Jewish. Um, they're going to mention directly the word God. They're going to say the kingdom of God, which is sort of, again, if, if I may refresh your memories on last week, a kingdom is um, made up of three ingredients. There is a king, Yahweh, there is land, Israel, and there is a people, um, 
Again, the people of Israel, not the land. The people of Israel. That is the kingdom of God. And when the writers are writing to the Gentile people, they're describing the kingdom of God. They're describing a people ruled by God, where God is meant to rule, all that. We would describe it as King Jesus. Um, the whole world is in, under the direct rule of our King Jesus, and we are the people of God inviting people to take part. Okay, this is the kingdom of God. Um, however, if you're a Jewish writer of Scripture writing to a Jewish audience like Matthew is, you're not going to say kingdom of God. You're going to say kingdom of heaven. You're going to describe it differently because if you're talking to a Jewish audience, you're not going to say God in general. You're going to say heaven. It's in the vicinity of God. So let's say you are a Jewish businessman and you are going under contract with another landowner in that day. Um, say to rent out, your, rent out your land to them, they're going to pay you a certain amount. And you're going to work out the contract. You're either going to get paid um, a specific amount of money or you're going to get paid like a tenth or whatever percentage of the crops come in. And you're going to write out a contract and you're going to swear by something that you're going to fulfill this contract when you sign it. And when you swear, you're going to call upon the highest thing possible to swear, but you can't say the name of God. So you're going to say, I swear by the temple, right? Oh, by the way, uh, I just wanted to show you an example of Matthew. Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. If he was writing to anyone else, he would have said kingdom of God, okay? Um, it's all about the author. I hear people sometimes talk about, what's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? It depends on the author. It's all the same. The only difference is who is receiving the book. That's, but they're the same meaning. Um, so in this contract, though, you're going to swear by God, because you're going to swear by the highest thing you possibly can, that I'm going to fulfill this contract your money is safe with me, okay? I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to pay you back. So this contract, you're not going to swear by God. You may swear by heaven, or you may, in the second century, they just come to swear by the temple. Why would you swear by the temple? Well, that big square in the middle there, that's the Holy of Holies. That is the place in the world where they believed God and humanity came together, the only place in the universe where heaven and earth came together, where human beings and God could dwell once again together. It's, it's a Garden of Eden. It is how things were meant to be. It is one day going to be, they believe, the reality of the whole world, right? And that veil is going to come down and it's going to spread out, right? Now, um, so you're going to make a promise in this thing. You're going you're to swear by the temple. Or you're going to swear by the altar, which would have been over here somewhere. Um, but you're not going to say the word God, but you're going to swear like this. Now, the Pharisees, this is how they lived as well. The Pharisees were the, were the spiritual leaders, and they would encourage people not to say the name of God, but to swear by the temple or whatever. Um, but let's say you're a Pharisee, and one of your jobs is to uh, sit in what's called the seat of Moses. We read about that last week or maybe the week before. Um, this is what the Pharisees did. They, it was one of their jobs to sit in the seat of Moses. The seat of Moses is not a metaphor. It's an actual seat. Looks like this. This is the seat of Moses in Chorazin. It's got some Hebrew writing on there. Um, I'm not an Old Testament Hebrew scholar, so uh, we'll just admire the Hebrew writing together. <laughs> um, I could call some friends and find out what it means, but I don't know what it says. But this is the seat of Moses, and this is where they would sit, um, and people would bring them cases to be discussed. And they would render judgments. They believed that the Spirit of God came over them to, uh, to deal out wisdom to the people. Now, there's a way this would happen. You would bring somebody, they would bring a contract, and they would come and stand before the Pharisee who's sitting on the seat of Moses, and all the people would be gathered around. And 
one person would say about the other, this person is unrighteous. And he would say, why? Well, righteous and unrighteous in the New Testament um, is not a description of somebody who, like, sinned and lied. Um, Righteousness has specifically to do with Jewish law courts. The idea of righteousness is um, we go into contract, and if I fulfill my contract and I pay you back, I am declared righteous. I fulfilled my contract. Paul regularly in the book of Romans writes, he uses a phrase in the Greek, it's dikaiosune uh, theon, which is like the, the righteousness of God. When he talks about the righteousness of God, he's not talking about the fact that God's not lying or cheating or stealing, which I don't believe he is. What he's talking specifically about is God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. God has made a covenant with Israel. And God's righteousness equals God's covenant faithfulness, his faithfulness to Israel, that he will fulfill that covenant, okay? This is the idea of righteousness. So they have a contract, a covenant, and they stand before the Pharisees and they say, I gave this person money and they didn't pay me back. Are they righteous or not? Who in the situation is righteous and who is unrighteous? And whoever's unrighteous has to pay it back. Now, uh, let's say you're that Pharisee. And it's a small town. Chorazin is a small town. Bethsaida was a small town. Jerusalem actually didn't have that many people either. I mean, for what it is, it wasn't a big place. And let's say the people standing before you, maybe you knew them. And maybe you liked this person. And you didn't like this person. But they had a contract. And maybe you actually had a business contract with this person that you like as well. That you have other business going on. Um, And let's say it actually benefits you for them not to pay back the loan to this person that they made. And they signed under contract. And all you had to do was rule in their favor, and you would make money. And so they pulled the contract out, and they stand there. He swore by the, by the temple, or he swore by the altar, or he swore by heaven. And the Pharisee has to make a judgment call here. He could do the just and righteous thing and say, yeah, you should pay him back. But he gets a kickback, and maybe he just really doesn't like this person. Maybe this person has even done something unjust, and he feels like they, you need to pay for it, Right? And so you're going to say, well, you swore, by, you swore by the temple, but you didn't swear by the gold in the temple. And that's, that's really the pricey thing, right? Like, I mean, the gold, like it's the stone and then gold, right? So that wasn't a binding contract. Or you swore by the altar, but you didn't. I mean, what's an altar without sacrifices? It's just like a pile of rocks with some horns on it. Like it needs some meat. Right? You didn't swear by the sacrifice on top of the altar. So, you know, technically, this, this contract was never valid from the beginning. Sorry. That's the way it goes. Uh, and this is what was happening. And they were manipulating the justice system as we do when we get kickbacks. As much as, as, much as um, we like to put off in our world, like, oh, there's not one one set of rules for the rich and, and, and powerful and another for everyone. We all know that there is, always has been. And so Jesus has some words. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Now, remember, Jesus is standing talking to these Pharisees and a whole crowd is around. They're in the temple. And all these people have seen these guys sort of rule this way and act this way. And now is their time for Jesus to go public and scold all of them. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Jesus is letting everyone know that not only were their oaths valid, let your yes be yes. 
If you make an oath to someone, fulfill it. But that from now on, there should be no more games and there should be honest justice. And then he goes a step farther. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those three words, justice, Christian is, is, the word, uh, is, is the word, and it means um, all that is fair and right and equitable. Mercy is elios. That word is, it's a great word because uh, the word eli is the Greek word for sun, right? Like it's the sun shining. Mercy, like I, I see you. Like the sun is shining upon you. You're not hidden in the dark. Like I see you, and I'm present to help you. But mercy is an act of, of, of rightness, a goodness towards somebody, not, not demanding repayment. Um, and fulfillment, pistis, is allegiance. So what we have here is, um, allegiance is faithfulness is like vertical obedience, and then the rest is like horizontal obedience to people, peace with God and with the people around us. Um, and so he's talking to them about their tithes. He says, there's these things that the prophets talked about, which were the most important things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And you're over here tithing of your spice rack. Okay. Now, interesting thing about this is, um, you can read up on the tithe laws of Deuteronomy 14, um, and you can read, it's from verse 22 to 29, and read that on your own time. I'm going to pull out three important things that we can gather from this. First off, um, they were to tithe the yield of their seed. Um, if you made money from the world, um, from the land, the, everything was God's, nothing, there was no natural order of creation in the ancient mindset. God literally was doing everything. The, 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 the plants were coming up out of the ground because God was lifting them out of the ground. The water fell because God was bringing it down. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Um, um, the animals multiplied and gave birth at his command. And so everything that you were living off of had nothing to do with you. It, it was directly at the hand of God. And so you take it and you take some of it and you give the first 10% and you would take it to the temple, Okay. Um, not the 10% that was left over. You're like, well, these, this weed is a little, little shabby. Throw, throw in the 10% pile. No, like the first, it's called the first fruits, the first 10% to come up, which is also an act of faith. Because if, if 10% of my fruit comes up and only 90%, 90, the other 90% hasn't, and I rip these out of the ground, and then a fire rages, and I've given this away, I've lost everything. It's ripping it out of the ground and taking it to the temple, knowing and trusting, I got this from God, I'll get that from God too. It's like, it's a way that they were supposed to live in this world. The second thing is that uh, the command was, you shall eat the tithe of your wine, your oil, uh, and the firstborn of your flock. You shall eat them. They were actually were able to consume them. Um, certain things you would take and give to the storehouses um, of the temple, including money and grain and stuff. But then there was wine, oil, and the firstborn of your flock. These things you would actually drink and consume at the temple. You would go to the temple and stand across from the priest at a table, and you and the priest, the holy image of God before you, wearing all the priestly vestments, would stand there and look at you, and you would spread a meal that you had brought, and you and the priest would eat it together in the presence of God, praying and giving thanks. It was this joyful thing. And the last thing was, uh, there was a reason. So that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. There's those two words here that are really important. Fear is the word yare. Everyone say yare. It means to, to have awe and reverence. It is, it is to understand um, the sacredness of everything that you are doing. You are receiving food and eating it. Um, you don't know how it works. 
I mean, we might now, but imagine in this day. They didn't know how it worked. They didn't know where it came from. And they were to order their life in a way that continuously saw the wonder in all of it. And the second thing, always, you may have this awe for the Lord. Always. Chimera. Everyone say, Chimera. Okay. Um, Literally, as you go through your day, this was for you. As you go through your day, having awe and wonder at the gift of life, that is taking place all around you. Because first off, there's two things you need to remember. First off, all of life is a gift. You woke up this morning with breath in your lungs and food to eat and clothing to wear and some mode of transportation to get here and people to come with if you came with people. All of this is a gift. There are people who did not wake up this morning. There are people right now who are mourning their loved ones who did not live through the night because no day is promised to you. There are people who woke up with nothing to wear, nothing to eat, nowhere to go, nothing to do. And here you are. This is a gift. No matter where you had gone this morning, it would have been a gift. That is how they're supposed to live and remember. The second thing they need to remember is that food is central to all life. And they were to theologically ponder this. You don't live as a self-contained being. You rely on the things outside of you to stay and remain alive. You breathe oxygen. You eat food that you did not cause to grow. You may have planted the seed, but you didn't make the seed. You may have pulled the seed from another plant, but you didn't grow that plant going all the way back forever and ever. All of it is a gift. Food is central to life. You rely on the things that are outside of you. And so you were to praise God for the things as you go throughout your day. When you become thirsty, there is water to correspond with your thirst. When you are hungry, there is food to correspond with that. Everything that you need is being given to you by a God who created everything around you. This is how they were supposed to live. This is why they did the tithes. And as they stood in the temple, and as they, as they brought their meal to the temple, and they spread it out, and they eat it, The problem is, is that we are people and human beings, and human beings have a a huge flaw, is that we like to make everything into first a rule, a law, and then a show. And so, this gift of the tithe intended to bring them life and create meaning in their life. They began to tithe more and more of more things and more things and more things. And the gift lost its giftness, right? Like, and, and it became sort of this, um, so a little bit of salt and then, and then like 10% of my salt. Okay, put it back. And, and, and they all have these gardens outside of their house. And they're like, well, I'm growing food, right? And so, but these are just spice gardens. And there's no commands to tithe from your spice garden. And so they go out, but they're tithing of their milk and dill and cumin. Like this, these tiny, tiny little amounts. And they're putting them in bags. And the Pharisees are coming. And they're tithing more than anyone else of every little piece in their house. Like it's just break a piece off the chair and take it down. and get, Like I, just everything you have, 10%, right? And they're coming down. And they're tithing and people see it and people are in awe and wonder and like, wow, they're really, they're really going at this. Like they, I mean, this must have great meaning for them, but it didn't. They realize everyone's watching them. And so now they're bringing the tiniest little thing and they're just consuming it and eating it. Open your mouth, priest. And they're just putting, like sprinkling on his tongue. Like, what are they doing? And they're doing all this so that everyone can see, right? So the gift 
is no longer a gift. And they're focusing on all this tithing and all these individual things when earlier that day they were passing judgments that benefited them and were unjust and oppressive to the people around them. Even contracts that they were in, they were wording them in a way so that they could get out of it and not repay and make money. And then we run around and we tithe of our mint and dill and cumin, right? And then Jesus says, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And Jesus says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Now, we have a long history of this. When this country was being founded, when it was being organized and ordered, um, that there were, there were people in the church doing great things. You can read about John Wesley and his sermons, and he cared passionately about, about people's purity and holiness and all this. Um, there's a book by uh, uh, J. Mar Tisby. It's called The Color of Compromise. And it's about the church's complicity, the white church's complicity in the oppression of our black brothers and sisters all through the beginning stages of the planting of America. And one of the big debates that these Enlightenment preachers, the most well-known ones, one of the biggest debates that they were having is, do we really present the entire gospel to the black man and the black woman? Because they're enslaved. And if we present the entire gospel to them, they're going to know that slavery is wrong. And so what do we do? Well, you know what we should do? We should present a gospel that is just personal and grants personal salvation and not communal and this thing was ordered and changed and edited and made soft and backed off a little bit from the really harsh things. And we, spent, we started spending all of our time on personal holiness. You will tithe. You will go to church every Sunday. You're not going to show very much cleavage or leg, women and men. I mean, you're only going to get drunk on certain nights. Right, like, and and you're only gonna like this is how it started, and it eventually turns into like, oh, now we're gonna ban all alcohol. We're gonna get, and we're gonna begin like we're gonna manage everyone's morality. We're gonna tithe of our spice rack is the equivalent of that. And we're gonna tell the truth, and we're not gonna lust, and we're not gonna lie, and we're gonna go to church, and we're gonna tithe. But the real issues of justice that the gospel is just clawing at in our souls. It benefits us not to talk about that, so we're not going to do that. And so the white church becomes complicit, not allowing the black churches and the Methodist denomination to even join and be full Methodist churches, and then creating a split. And now in modern day, hurling insults at the theological divide between the two. Of course there is. Of course there is. And you want to spend all your time debating the minutia of the theology and tithing of your theological spice rack when we should be throwing ourselves down and crying out for mercy, fighting for justice, and repairing our souls in the presence of God. Sorry to get heavy. Let's keep going. Matthew 23, 24 to 28. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and every unclean thing. On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, what we have here is a little bit of, of divine sarcasm, Okay? 
Um, the way this should be read is actually comedic and hilarious, while at the same time, wildly insulting. Not in a dehumanizing way, but like in a, like a, like a I don't know, just the way the kids talk, you know. <laughs> First off, let me show you this. Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, not Greek. Uh, the Aramaic word for gnat is galma, uh, while the word for camel is gamla. And so we start off with a rhyme, right? You blind Pharisees, you strain out a galma and swallow a gamla, right? And everyone's just like, busts out laughing at the whole idea. Both of which, the gnat and the camel, are forbidden. They can't eat them. The calf has a split hoof, so they can't eat that. The gnat is, it's a gnat, unclean. I don't make the rules. And they can't eat it. Locusts? Sure. Gnats? Uh Uh-uh. Now, and they would literally pour their wine through a piece of cloth to strain out any impurities that fell. Impurities you couldn't even really see or notice if you were to eat them. Um, so the whole metaphor of being holy, it, it's, it's meant to just like keep you a present and aware. Um, and Jesus has said, you're straining out that gnat, but like, bro, you've already swallowed the camel. Like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. And then it keeps going, and it gets more sarcastic. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, they're full of self-indulgence. And so the outside, uh, this is the idea that the Pharisees, before they eat, they would spread a table, uh, and then they would take their golden goblets, and they would, they would polish them clean. Everyone could see uh, on the inside. And it's spiritual ritual washing. This was intended to um, uh, be a gift to you for your soul's purpose. Like, um, I'm going to prepare my heart to receive food. That's beautiful, okay? That is beautiful. And how quickly it became, get the cup shiny, hold on. Look, see? Cool, huh? Fill it up. And Jesus is like, you're, I mean, you're basically drinking sludge. It looks real clean, but the insides are filthy, okay? Um, the insi- uh, then he says, you are whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but inside uh, the bones of the dead and everything is unclean. So, oh, I forgot to underline these. I have these plans, and I just don't follow through with them. Um, uh, the, the inside, the, I'm sorry, um, whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, and the inside are full of the bones of the dead. So whitewash and paint was for buildings where beautiful things happened inside. We tend to picture the ancient Roman world as a lot of tan, right? Like all the buildings were tan because they're all made of stone because they didn't have paint. Rongo. They had a lot of paint. Everything was very, very colorful. If you could actually see pictures, uh, 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 renderings of how Ephesus looked in its day, red, blue, yellow, it was incredible. Purple, just the most beautiful colors. And you would whitewash them and you would decorate them with all these colors. Um, the Sphinx itself was multicolored. There's still some blue left on the top of it. The Sphinx, the Sphinx was blue and red and yellow and green and vibrant and this amazing statue, which over the years, they've just, now they look like sand and stone. So we don't see any color. The one thing that was not painted was sepulchers and tombs because happy things didn't happen in them. It's inappropriate to paint those kinds of things in happy colors. <laughs> Wildly inappropriate. I mean, imagine, imagine having like a full security, like maximum security prison, and then like some angel wings painted on the side, and then like white girls posing in front of them like this, right? Like, inappropriate. We don't do that. We don't paint funeral houses. We don't decorate them up like fancy, like multicolored bungalows, like they're trendy. Like, we don't. It's a sad place, and we're going to let it be sad, okay? Um, I got to get this picture off of here. I got to keep going. Um, So, um, 
that you blind guides. Everything on the inside is filthy because a house dies from the inside. T.S. Eliot writes about, um, writes about uh, in his book, Four Quartets, he writes about how houses live and die and they die from the inside, not the outside. Me and my wife have done two home renovations on abandoned houses that we moved into and unabandoned them. And man, the bugs and rats alone were not having it. It was the termites, like I poked a ceiling once with a broomstick and the whole thing started coming down because houses die from the inside. On the outside, you're like, oh, it's like an adorable bungalow. It's a death trap inside because the beams aren't, they're eaten. They're eaten. You put a pencil through the beam, like you have to replace them all because if you move out of a house, there's this beautiful part in its first couple chapters of, of um, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. The first couple chapters there where he, he writes about what happens to a house after a family moves out and the, and the tumbleweeds sort of begin to pile up and the critters move in and the cats move closer onto the porch and then into the house um, and then the weeds begin to move in through the walls. Um, it's fascinated me when we first bought... Um, um, when we first bought an abandoned house when we moved in and, and you would see like a vine growing out of the wall in an inner hallway and you're like, you never... When you're living in a house, you never see a vine growing in into anything like this when people are living here. Even though nobody's under the house trimming the brush, right? But the fact that someone's living there, vines aren't growing in. For whatever reason, I don't understand it. But when you move out of a house, things just fall apart rapidly. Walls just start bending and flexing and dropping the plaster. It just happens. Houses die from the inside. And this is what Jesus is talking to them about. Verse 26, blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup, clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean also. Fix the inside and the outside will follow naturally. It is what happens. Um, And this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to these people. There is an internal way of life And they had taken it and turned it into an internal way of absolute death. Um, The spiritual disciplines that they were practicing, tithing, straining, preparing themselves to receive food, to pray uh, when they receive the food, um, giving and tithing and all of these things were intended to bring them life from the inside. But pretty rapidly, they had turned them into laws and then had turned them into requirements, and then turned them into methods by which you can judge people and decide who's in and who's out, who's righteous and who's not by their outsides and whether or not they're practicing these disciplines. Um, It struck me like two days ago when I'm sitting around with my family at dinner and we're about to eat, and you do that thing where you're like, wait, 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 don't eat. We haven't prayed. And instantly I'm like, that's that's a law. Like you can't eat. Until you've prayed. By the way, that's not in the Bible anywhere. Okay? It, it sort of comes, it's, it's a discipline passed down to us, which was intended to make you ask the question, am I aware that there is a plate of food in front of me which will sustain me for the next 12 hours or so? And that this plate of food is a gift and there's people around the world that don't have this plate of food. Am I thankful? Now I am. Well, I should say thank you then. And I say thank you. Um... How quickly that turns into, you had your eyes open during prayer. How could you eat before? Stop it. Stop eating. And it's now an oppressive thing that has nothing to do with anything. It's now religion. Okay? I have a daily reading regimen. I I try to read 
over the years, like I've, I've sort of figured out what I can handle, what I can do. It's about 20 pages of like random books a day, like theology books or whatever. And then I do three and a half pages of scripture because three and a half pages of scripture a day will get you through the Bible in about a year. And if you do this over and over, this is just a regular rhythm. But what I noticed about, about a decade ago is that I would, I would stop, like we, we started having kids and stuff gets really busy, and I would, and I would miss a couple of days because I'm exhausted. Um, and then I start to feel guilty and bad. Um, and then I try to cram it all back in and like catch up, right? Like because God's keeping track of where I was in, in the book of Jonah. Like, and I got to catch up, sorry, I'll, I'll, be, I'll catch up. Okay, now he can speak to me again because he's speaking to people who are on time, right? And I'm not. So I got to catch up. And I had taken this discipline, which was supposed to feed me. And I'm just like, there's anxiety and there's stress. And I'm like, I'm failing as a Christian. And like, I'm trying to read and the family needs help. I'm like, not now. I'm reading the Bible. Like, <laughs> that is a gift. Okay? It's a gift. Ch- church, gathering as a community of people. It's a gift. There is no judgment by God or any of us about whether or not you showed up to church. You can't show up to church. Like you're, a church is like you are the church, wherever you are. Okay, so like Our terminology is all off. But like when we gather together, if you don't, I have to go to church. Why? I just have to. I haven't been in three weeks. Okay, that's legalism, and you should stay in bed. Not even joking. Church is a gift. It is a gift. You come and we gather together, and we look each other in the eye, and we see each other. And if, and if there's words that need to be exchanged, they are exchanged. If there's hugs that need to be exchanged, they are exchanged. Um, and and you, can, you can serve us by, by, by serving or by giving, and, and we, can, we serve you however we can. And we sing these songs together and align our hearts with Jesus. We take communion to remind us what the center of all of this is about. Um, but at no point is anyone looking around saying, good, they're here. They're still a Christian. Good. Like, like nobody is doing this. God's not doing this. You shouldn't be doing this about yourself. And the second something becomes legalism and oppression on your own life, let it go. Given the choice between playing with your children and reading your Bible, I hope you close your Bible and play with your children. They are the gift from God that God wants you to see. When you open the scriptures, it should remind you that they are a gift. This is how... The life with God and community of, of, of God's people is supposed to be. The disciplines are a gift, not a level of commands. It is not what they are. When the, in, in Martin Luther's day, the Catholic Church had become so oppressive that they had leveled all these things. You have to do all these things or God has rejected you and spewed you out of his mouth. You have to give, you have to tithe, you have to, you have to serve, you have to do, your, do your, uh, your prayers, you have to live your life in this way. All these things they had to do. And Luther was irate about it. He's like, this has nothing to do with Christianity. And he, and he, and he breaks off and he starts a revolution and, and he starts the Protestant church. And when they started the Protestant church, they were like, first off, we want to do a few things that are going to bring us life. We're not going to be opulent like they were. We're going to be minimalist. Um, it's going to be simple. We're not going to waste our money doing this. We're going to use our money for this. And so they came up with like guidelines that were like, this is what we're going to do. And it's going to be simple and easy. It's going to keep us Centered on the things of God. However, within five years, you can read the words of John Calvin, who had wrote this. No feasting, no dancing, no singing, pictures, statues, relics, church bells, organs, altar candles, indecent or irreligious songs, staging or attending theatrical plays, no wearing rouge, no jewelry, no lace or immodest dress, um, no naming of children after any figures but the figures in the Old Testament. And how quickly... We turn our rituals that give life 
and they've given you life and you take them and you see someone else who's lacking the life source and, and, and joy that you have and the well that you dig from and you pull them aside and say, you know your problem. Here's what you have to do. And you prescribe them laws and laws and laws and laws and laws. These are gifts. All of this is a gift. The second it becomes a law, you should reject it. But here's the thing. Um, when you spend time fixing up the inside, when you make yourself healthy, when you make yourself a, a well to pull from, that you drink from, it's not just you that benefits, it's all of us. We all benefit. I mean, when I pray and I, and I do it regularly, I, am in, I, I begin to find myself in tune with the things of God, especially when I'm praying the scriptures sort of back to God. I, I begin to align myself with the things of God and, and I find myself more merciful and compassionate, less irritable. Like I find myself genuinely exhibiting the love of God and this is how it works. When I spend time fasting, when I let go of something for a while and I sort of declare dominance over the flesh and I will not be controlled by the, the things of the flesh, um, I begin to be, to have less anxiety about the external things. And what you need when you, when you have high anxiety and you're terrified and things are going really bad, what you need is a, is a constant steady presence of somebody who is not a non-reactive presence, who is the same as they always have been. And that happens through inner discipline, which is a gift, not a law. And so if you practice the spiritual discipline, you can be what another person in your life needs you to be, and you can anchor them without even them practicing it. Um, When I spend time practicing regular giving, when I order my life and my budget in a way that is generous and the money goes out, I find... I'm less likely to take more than my share, more than I need. I find that I don't have a desire to ask for more than I need. I find that I don't have the desire to take from something from somebody else. I, have, I find I have um, the desire to give when I see other people who are in need. These spiritual disciplines are there to fill you up, to create your soul into a, a wellspring of life, that not just you drink from, but all of us do. And the Pharisees, the hypocrites, had taken these things and absolutely tarnished them. And Jesus says to them, that's why he says, they bind up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, and they themselves will not move them with their finger. All they have to do is move them and lift them, and they won't because other people need to get in line. And we spend so much time focusing on all these minute details, the point of filling up your soul in this way, the point of the fasting is to fill you up so you can practice justice and mercy. Not so you can spend your time focusing on things so you can, so you can do your best to, to, to turn a blind eye to everything going around that maybe you are taking part in. Instead, we should understand what Paul says, the letter of the law leads to the death of the soul. The Spirit of God alone can give life to the soul. Um... Our world is act, it's really hungry for genuinely changed people. And if I may, like, if I may for some reason end this sermon with, by quoting uh, a Russian philosopher, <laughs> um, Leo Tolstoy, um, he says, 
Um, he says, everybody thinks of changing humanity, but nobody thinks of changing themselves. Like, you all, you all have a lot of opinions about all the people that need to change in the world. Change yourself. It's contagious. And it's healthy. Some of you have neglected yourself for so long and you, you do it under the guise of, I'm pouring myself out because I have children, I have a husband and a wife and I, and I have a boss and, and I have fam- extended family. They all need my help and you just keep pouring yourself out and pouring yourself and you never take a Sabbath. You never fill yourself up. And I'm not telling you, commanding you, giving you a law that God says to take a Sabbath. I'm saying like, yo, God says to take a Sabbath. Like, stop. You, you don't think you could meet their needs if you weren't full? Try it. You'll be way more efficient. If you yourself are full, you have much more to pour out for other people. And so why don't we take communion and ponder these things? Uh, This is the ultimate picture of pouring ourselves out. Our communion servers, you guys can take the elements um, and gather and spread around the room. There's two elements. There's the body of Christ broken for you. The the wine is the blood of Christ poured out for you. Um, And I want want us to ponder the ways that we've been trying so hard to not break the laws and to not make God mad. And I want us to gather all that up, just throw it out the window. I, I want you right now to think of the ways that you have neglected your soul and ponder all of the ways that God has given you to feed these things, these parts of your life that you've neglected. And just practice one of them right now. Just spend some time in prayer and confession. And then let's come to the table as equals, no matter how pious, no matter how, if you're at rock bottom, Let's come to the table as equals. Let's wrap our mind around the thought that Jesus poured out himself for us so that you could be filled. If you're not being filled, you're missing it. Be filled. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us. Have your spirit speak to us and convict us or encourage us or change us, whatever it is. Let us throw out... uh, of the laws and receive love and faith and allegiance to things of you. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.